If you have your Bibles, you may open them up to Jude, the book of Jude that is towards the back of the Bible. If you are new to the scriptures, new to the Bible, or it's just been a long time since you have opened one, you will find Jude not only towards the back, but you can use the pew Bible. They are along each aisle, each end of the pew along the aisle. And if you are in the chairs, it is in those pew Bibles. It is page 1058. And Jude is a short letter. It is from Jude, whose real name was Judas. But for some reason, he didn't want to go by Judas. And uh, we have him here, his He is the Jude. He is a a bondservant of Christ Jesus and a brother of James, which tells us that he is a stepbrother or a half-brother of Christ. But he does not even want to identify that. But we are just going to look at the end of Jude this morning, where he will deliver to us a doxology that is a call to praise. But before we do that, I'd ask that you join me in a brief word of prayer, asking for the Lord's mercy on us as we enter into study of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask that the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips will be honoring to you, our God and our Savior, together this morning. Amen. In the fourth century BC, a story arises, and whether it is a, a mythological story or whether it is based in truth, we're not totally sure. But it has to do with the reign of Dionysius, who ruled over the city of Syracuse. And there was, in his court, there was a man by the name of Damocles. And Damocles wanted to be king, thought that he would make a wonderful king. And in talking with the king, he convinced him to allow him, through means, he allowed him to, to be king for an entire day. And so Damocles wanted this opportunity, took full advantage of it, and for an opportunity, for an entire day, he was able to rule as king in entirety over the city of Syracuse. But the king had made some enemies, as kings are wont to do, and, and to wear the crown was itself a dangerous job. So while Damocles was only going to experience this rule, this reign, for a single day, Dionysius wanted him to experience the weight of responsibility and the threat of poor choices against him. And so Dionysius had rigged above the throne a sword hanging by a single thread of a horse's hair on the hilt. And so that sword pointing down above the throne. So as Damocles sat in the throne he would be reminded at any moment that that sword, that that, that that thin thread could snap. And soon Damocles, terrified for his life, begged off, please, please, let me be done. And he turned from being the king. Damocles wanted this responsibility And he thought it was going to bring him great joy, and it did far, far, far more than he expected. It changed his perspective of the rule. It gave him a sense of the tenuousness of life and the great weight that that comes with responsibility. 
It gave him an appreciation for his king. And here we are called in these last two verses to rejoice in God as our God, as our king. To, to honor and praise his name. And Jude here, he begins these words in verse 24. He writes in this short book, Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And it's easy to, as we approach this, these two verses, to see how we might divide it up. We, we see that there is a, a time to praise, a time to praise. And he begins with this call to praise God now. But the now is, is not a, it's not a perfunctory now. It's not like, okay, now we're going to do this, and then now we're going to do this. This is what we normally do, so now we move from this and this. It, it's not like this ordinary motion. It's merely perfunctory. It's, this is intentional. This is deliberate. This is driven. It's also not a re, what we might call a redemptive now. If you've read through portions of the New Testament, you'll come across passages like in Ephesians chapter 2. Or we are described as, as men and women, boys and girls, we are described as sinners, children of the wrath, under the wrath of God, driven by the passions of our, of our heart, of our flesh, under the condemnation of God. And then we have this redemptive phrase, but now. But now, and that marks this grand redemptive work of God to turn things. Once we were this way, but now because of the grace of God, we can be, we are made alive by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. That's that redemptive now, but that's, that's not the way this works. Jude hasn't been talking about Things are so terrible, but now, now we have God's grace in this. That's, that's not what he's calling us to. Nor is this a, a climactic now, as if he's been building toward this. At the very beginning of this book, in verse 3, Jude starts off saying, Beloved, while I was very diligent or wanting to write to you concerning our common salvation, so Jude's purpose, when he first sat down, or Jude's first desire when he sat down to write this letter. He wanted to write a letter that rejoiced in all that God had done for them. He wanted to write a letter that magnified Christ. His heart's desire was to rejoice in Christ and, and, and the grace that is found in him. This common salvation, not common in the terms of ordinary but common in the terms of, this is what we hold in common. This is what God has done for us all together. That's what he wants to write. But the situation of Jude's audience is such that he can't write that letter. Instead, he goes on, he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness 
and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude sets out, he's like, look, what I wanted to talk about, I, I wanted to talk about great and glorious things. But the situation that you are all in is so dire, I have to deal with, with this situation first. Parents of kids, you know all about this. You may have plans to go out and do something special with the kids, but they, they do something, they start acting in such a way that those plans get upended, and instead of, you know, happiness and joy and, you know, rainbows and ice cream and all sorts of great things, now it's like wrath and anger and like weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? It's, it's like, this is going to be a problem. That's what's going on. And then Jude, after verses of describing these false teachers which have come in, in the effect that they are having on his church, he calls the people of God in verses 20 to 23 to build themselves up by keeping themselves in the love of God. And then all of a sudden he switches to now. And it's almost like if you're following along in the logic of Jude, it's almost like this comes out of nowhere. It, it's like things are bad, things are bad, things are bad, and now all of a sudden, now let's praise God. And you've got to wonder, Jude, what's going on? It's almost like he's, he's bipolar, he's bad things, but now he switches on a dime. It's, it's like you've got a little bit of whiplash reading this. Things are bad, but let's praise God. What we find is that this is a, a real life now. That's the now. It is a, a real life now. It is this situation that Jude's audience is in and that you and I are in as well. It is a tenuous situation. That is, we are, we are living through desperate times and Christians are always living through desperate times. We are told in verses 16 to 19, Jude says, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, proud words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Had they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts? These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. This is the time in which Jude's audience is living through. Might they have been scared and anxious, horrified at what is happening to their churches? Might they have been angry, frustrated with what is being allowed as they watch friends who once seemed to be walking lockstep with them in faithfulness to God, but now have have been diverted, have been captured and and, and caught up in a teaching that has drawn them from Christ? Might they have become cynical, sneering, condescending towards those that they thought just didn't understand what they themselves knew? Might they have been afraid for their own families, their own kids, perhaps even their own faith in Christ? If so-and-so can fall away, what does that mean for me? If, if that person who I so respected, who has been walking with Jesus for so long, has seemed to abandon Christ, what hope is there for me? 
If they have fallen into sin, how, how am I possibly going to remain faithful? In every age, there are churches that are being torn apart at the seams by false teachers like this. In every age and in every society around the world, believers are threatened by teaching. It invades our churches and our hearts and threatens to lead us away from Christ. And at these times and situations, you can find Christians, good Christians, responding in all sorts of ways. And it is in the middle of this that Jude calls us to praise God. Things are dire. Things are urgent. Even amongst churches, they seem to be weakening as Christians abandon the way of the Lord, abandon the clear teaching of Scripture to follow after the things of the world. And Jude here at the end, he's calling us to praise. Why? What do we have to praise God for? Jude seems to understand something that you and I often forget. Jude understands that that one of the mightiest weapons that God has granted to us in our arsenal to fight for faith is itself the praise of God. As we contend for the truth, we praise and worship God because in praise we are reminded where our hope and confidence really are. They are not in us, not in our wisdom, not in our knowledge, not in our upbringing, not in our church, not in our leaders, not in so-and-so that we might respect, not in our parents, not in our, our, not in our practices that we, have, that we have come to follow in. Our hope isn't in any of that. It is not in us or anything in this world. Our hope before God to remain faithful is itself in, in God. It is in Him alone. And thus praise and worship of God acts like a, a charging cable to renew our zeal and to remind us of where we are anchored, of in whom we are casting all our hope upon. As we see, praise for God isn't meant to be reserved when we feel like praising God. Jude's audience, by all accounts, as we're reading through this book, there is no indication that they felt like praising God, that that the situation there seemed good enough for them to be feeling optimistic so that they would praise God. Praise isn't reserved only for those whose lives are going well. Hashtag blessed, everything's good, life is fine, I can praise God this week. I've, I've been remarkably better this week. I've, I've been more faithful to the Lord. I have, I, that, that sin that I've been laboring and warring against, you know, this week I've, I've had particular success against it. Praise God isn't only for those who are particularly good. It is for all times. It is to remind us who our God is and what he has done. And having filled our minds with the truth of God's worth, our hearts are warmed by his glory. So it's it's a real life now. It's not a, a change now. It is not a culminating now. It is now in the real world. Now in the midst of real pain. Praise him.
Not only that, it is who is this one that we are to praise? Now to him. And this hymn is, we are told, now to him who, in the, in the New King James, it says, to God our Savior who alone is wise. But every, every other translation will, except the New King James and the King James, they will read this way. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason for that difference is because it is a difference of manuscripts that lie behind the King James and the New King James. They, the King James translators didn't have access to these manuscripts, not sufficiently. And that reading, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, seems to be a, a far better reading of the text. And he is, we praise him because he is the only God. There is no one else like him. He is God and there is no other. He is the creator. All that exists comes from him. He has made all things. Nothing exists that he did not create. Not one person has ever existed that God himself has not fashioned The universe is a theater for his glory and he will be glorified as the only God if we will have simply eyes to see it. He is the king, the sovereign one, the only one ruling over all things, providentially guiding all things to his appointed end. He is not a victim of the orders of with the directives of kings or council or congress. His hands are not tied by the rulings of bureaucrats or the Supreme Court. He rules and he reigns over everything. He is the only God. He is also our Savior through Jesus Christ. Too often in we as Christians today have this idea of, of God that the Father is angry with us, but Christ has come and, and Christ is, He is the one who is shielding us. He is the one who has turned God's anger away. God, God wants to judge us, but Christ has acted against that and satisfied that justice at the cross. And so we can worship Christ, but we might have a difficulty with God. But this will not allow us It is God our Savior, and he saves us through his Son, Jesus Christ, who is himself the true God. God is a Savior. This hits to that root truth that you and I, all of us, need a Savior. That we we have sinned against God, as the Bible clearly lays out. In our hearts, in our minds, with our choices and our actions, Sin lies at the very heart of us and it, it, it stains everything that we do so that even the righteous, the best things that we have to offer up to God are themselves stained by sin. So that even on our, our best day, all our best deeds and our best day are nothing but soiled rags in the estimation of our holy God. As one author old author has said, even our repentance, our tears of repentance themselves need to be washed in the blood of Christ. And we come up short. There is no help for us within ourselves or in this world. 
There is no hope for us within ourselves or in this world. We cannot cleanse ourselves nor forgive ourselves. But despite our unworthiness, God has, through Christ Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he has paid for sin. So that all who look to Christ, all who hope in him, they find themselves forgiven and cleansed. No more guilt, no more shame eternally. God saves and he rescues sinners from his justice, from his wrath, from the eternal judgment which we deserve. Friends, this morning, if you have not turned and trusted in Christ, if you are at this moment still hoping that God will accept you because you're trying to be good, trying to be better, trying to be more spiritual, more religious, none of that, none of that means anything before the Lord. Even it is still sin as we try to commend ourselves to Him. There is only one Savior. God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. And the entire answer of Scripture is that we ought to look to Him, to hope in Him. He is the one that has made a way. He is the one who has rescued and redeemed sinners. And He is the one to whom belongs eternal glory. Be glory and majesty, dominion, and power, both now or before all time, now and forever. Amen. Eternal glory. Glory is is something that God has in and of himself. It is an innate glory. And Jude here, he is talking not so much about God's innate glory as about how worthy God is to receive all the glory that we may ascribe to him. You see, we do, we do not add to God's glory because His glory exists eternally. Rather, we ascribe to Him, we recognize Him for the glory that is due to His name. Glorifying God is the exaltation of those who exalt in Him as God. More than this, He has not only glory, But we ought to give to him all majesty. This speaks of God's splendor, his his resplendence, the brightness of his glory. If you think of kings and queens, their their robes, the crowns, the majesty that we associate with royalty. That is what is being pictured here. But in the New Testament, it is, it is fascinating. This is a word, in the time of Jude, it would have been reserved culturally for Caesar. It would have been reserved culturally for kings and high government leaders. They had majesty. But in the New Testament, majesty is ascribed to God alone. God alone is the majestic one. God alone has all majesty. Every majesty, every bit of majesty here on earth is is a pale imitation of His majesty. 
Growing up, there was a, a man that came to our church. He was an eccentric man, had some oddities about him. And one of those oddities was that he was fascinated with Elvis Presley. He, he loved Elvis Presley. And I, I can't stress that enough. If you went into his home, it was almost a mini museum of Elvis Presley. Sometimes in visiting him, he would have and wear an Elvis Presley outfit with the whole regalia. He, he loved Elvis, okay? It was more than a little weird. And there was a time when, I'll never forget, he came to church wearing the Elvis Presley costume. And he had, he would talk about what it was made of and he had it made and fit for him. And then he would, I'll never forget this phrase, as he would brag about his Elvis Presley costume or apparel, it is genuine imitation leather. Genuine imitation leather. That's all the majesty in the world, is just genuine imitation majesty. True majesty belongs to God alone. Everything else here is just a pale shadow. It belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. More than this, it is to Him belongs Eternal dominion and power, or power and authority. And you need both of these together, because someone may have dominion, but they not, that, that is, they may have power, but they may not have the authority to exercise that power. Or they may have authority, but they may not have the power, the ability to execute something. And God has absolutely all of it, completely, both of these two together. He has all power and all authority. He needs not ask any opinion from anyone else to do anything. He is himself God. Psalm 136, the Lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. In every place and in every moment, God has all the power all the authority to accomplish his will. And for this, we ought to praise him and recognize him. All this reminds us of something absolutely critical. Here is a doxology, and for such a short book, this doxology is one of the longest doxologies in the New Testament. And at the very heart of it is God and his works. Worship is not about you and I. It is not, while it is for you and I, it is a gift of God to allow us to engage in worship to Him. It is not ultimately about you and I. It does not center on you and I. It is about God. It is for Him. Christians and churches in every age and in every culture are tempted to adjust their gathered corporate worship to accommodate their own interests, to accommodate our own pleasures, what makes us comfortable, what we enjoy, what we like. There's so much pressure for us to 
to make sure that we sing all the songs that we like. To have the music that we like. To hear the kinds of sermons that we like. That last, in those sermons, that last as long as we like. But if we are going to evaluate our worship by what we like, it's fit to wonder whether we are here worshiping God or ourselves. It's hard to say that God, as the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ, is worthy of all glory, majesty, dominion, and power if we insist on our own way, our own preferences, our own comfort level. If we will worship only if everything in our lives is working out the way we want. If there is no other, uh, no, nothing else scheduled that day that might be inconvenient for us to, to make it the church. That, that we are willing to worship, but as, as long as it does not, brothers receive this, as long as it does not impede on our ability to get home before kickoff. We are here not for us. But for the Lord, brothers and sisters, we need to check our hearts. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. But I've skipped the very heartbeat of this passage in verse 24. When we are given the reasons by which we are to, or for which we are to praise God. Not only for his person, but for what he has done. The first thing we see there is now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. In verse 21, Jude had told his audience, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And if that is something that you and I, that rests on you and I alone, friend, we are hopeless. None of us can be faithful enough, obedient enough, good enough, consistent enough so that we can keep ourselves in God's love. But even as we strive to keep ourselves in God's love, we, we rest ourselves in, in God, who we read, He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and falling away. He gives what He commands. Our security doesn't rest ultimately on us. If you look at the world and you watch Christians and people you love who once professed faith now turn against Him, if you worry about your children or your grandchildren, what will happen? Rest yourself in Him. He is able to keep us from stumbling. And falling away. More than this, He is able to present us faultless, blameless, spotless. He's able to present us faultless before the presence of His glory. This idea of presenting is, it carries the idea of Him making us stand. If, if the first one is He keeps us from falling down, this is the idea that he, he makes us stand up. But it's not just that He makes us stand up, but He makes us stand up in the presence of God that is to present us before Himself. 
God is the one who cleanses us of our sin, removes us of our guilt, so that we are able to be presented to him through the blood of Christ Jesus on our behalf. A few weeks ago, the Queen of England passed away. I was preaching at a high school camp, and um, the sadness was palpable. I can't believe the Queen of England died. Isn't this so sad? And I couldn't help but thinking, wait, what about July 4th, right? Sad that she died, but, you know, she's not my queen. But in the hours that, that pulled away, the hours that followed after the news of her death, stories began to flood. They began to flood online about what she had done, what a remarkable woman she was. One of my favorite stories that I found was when she had got older. Uh, it, was, it was custom, it is custom, for the monarch, the Queen of England, now the King of England. It was their responsibility at the beginning of every session of Parliament that every year that the Queen of England at that time would go and, and inaugurate or begin the session of Parliament. It was her responsibility to kick it off and start it each year. And that the process for her to get to the House of Lords where Parliament would sit was that she would ascend a long spiral staircase and then she would walk down this, this lengthy hallway lined with stone on either side and have queen, the Queen's guards on either side of her as she passed between. And as she would walk down this long aisle, the Queen's guards would take their swords and they would strike the stone, showering her with sparks. That is an entrance, right? And she would walk down this long hallway to the House of Lords, wherein she would enter in and begin that parliamentary session for the year. One year, as she was getting older, she was no longer able to ascend this spiral staircase. It got to be too much for her. So they worked around. There was an elevator and so they, the, the plan was for she was going to enter into the elevator with two queen's guards and they would, uh, the person responsible for pushing the button there would, would hit the button, rise her to the very top, or ri- rise her to the proper floor in which the doors would open and she would walk down the hallway. The problem was she entered in, queen's guards entered in with her, and perhaps the gentleman who was in charge of hitting the button got nervous that he was now doing this for the queen herself. And he hit the wrong button. So the doors, the elevator moves, doors open, and it opens on the janitorial floor, the maintenance floor. And there at the, as the doors open, there is a woman, a janitor named Alice. And she's not paying attention to what's going on. She just knows that for weeks, months, years, when those doors open, she takes her janitorial cart and she pulls or pushes it in. And so the doors open, she's not paying attention, she's looking down and she just pushes it in, not aware that the Queen of England is there in the lift with her. She goes in, pushes it in, and, and situates herself, the doors close behind her, nothing happens. And in that moment, she must have realized something was wrong, somebody else sensed the presence of other people in the lift, and so she looks behind her and she sees the Queen of England. And she curses. She lets out an expletive. 
you can imagine this is not how you're supposed to act in the presence of the queen. There is, in that elevator at that moment, just deathly silence. What do you do? No one says anything. No one moves. Wait, how will the queen respond? She begins to laugh uproariously. Everyone begins to laugh with her. But instead of instructing the elevator uh, operator to open the doors, let Alice out so she can go to the proper floor, she instructs him to take her to the proper floor. And there she takes Alice next to her and insists that Alice walk with her all the way down the hallway. Queen's guards striking their swords into the House of Lords. From that point on, once a year, Alice and the Queen would get together for dinner to commemorate their their friendship. That is how Christ presents us. Alice would never be able to enter into the House of Lords without the Queen of England. But with the Queen of England, no one would dare deny her. Friend, through Christ Jesus, God has presented us to himself, and he cannot turn his son away. We are presented in the presence of God, faultless, blameless, Though we are sinners, though we are unworthy, though we are broken, though we sin every day, we are presented faultless, spotless before the throne of God. And we are presented with great joy. Don't don't let your heart miss that. You know, you... If you are sensitive to the fact that you are a sinner, that you are unworthy of God's grace. You may be afraid of that day when you stand before God and all of our sin, all of our guilt is exposed. And we may be a day of sorrow, a day of fear, a day of anxiety, a day that grips our heart with terror, that God knows us like this and that he would reveal us like that. But on that day, we will be presented before the presence of his glory with great joy, with exceeding joy. That God's aim for you, if you have trusted in Christ, is not fear, is not doubt, It is your ultimate, eternal joy and happiness in Him through Christ Jesus. This is great joy, exuberant joy. A never-ending escalator of happiness in God, an eternal cascade of soul-satisfying gladness in Him who has sent His Son on our behalf. This is the joy in the presence of God. This is what God has secured for you. This is an otherworldly joy. This is what we have so often reflected on in Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
Not some joy. Not lots of joy, but fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures, many pleasures forevermore. David would write in Psalm 84, For a day in your courts is far better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed, happy, joyful is the one who trusts in you. And how could we not receive such joy in the presence of God? Twice Paul in 1 Timothy describes God as the blessed God, the blessed sovereign, he who is most joyful, he who is blessed in and of himself. Our problem is not that we are seeking joy, but that we are seeking it in all the wrong places. God has, through Christ, secured the joy of his people. God is not against our joy. He is infinitely, eternally, omnipotently for it. How does that alter your view of God's commands? That his commands, not, they come not to restrict your joy, but to maximize it. Not only in this life, but in eternity. That God's word was written for our joy, that we might see this even in a world that is broken. And we might remember and reflect our God has secured our joy through Christ. How does this alter our view of God's providence in our lives? That all of our pain, all of our suffering, all that has gone on this week and will come in next week and the week after and the month after. God's purpose for his people is to receive glory for he is worthy of it and in being glorified, his people are made glad. Friends, God calls us to rejoice in him as a means to fight for faith, to contend for the faith with joy, to see and to savor him above all things. And so the invitation comes, the command comes, the call to worship comes. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and power before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Oh Lord, we are, we are humbled by your grace to us in Christ. We are humbled that you have sent your Son to rescue and redeem us 
from the judgment that we deserve. You are our Savior. You are the only God. Well, Father, I pray that you will, through, through praise, you will work in our hearts to see and to savor you above all things. And we will contend earnestly for the faith, clinging solely to your grace in Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.